Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. Welcome. We're so glad you're here today for rain, nostalgia, and empathy, liturgical poems for the holiday of Sukkot. Couldn't be better timing leading up to Sukkot tomorrow night. We are um, we love partnering with our dear friends at Congregation Bethel. Um, welcome, Wendy. Welcome, Rabbi Nitzan Steinkoken um, and Professor Danielle Steinkoken. We're, we're so glad you're all here. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to my colleague, Rabbi Steinkoken, to introduce Dr. Landis today. Welcome, Dr. Yitzlandis. It's I'm just gonna first give you the background, your background of what you bring uh, to us, and then uh, I'll have a little anecdote for you, maybe. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Yitzlandis is an assistant professor of rabbinic literature and cultures at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America, and his research focuses on rabbinic Judaism, the history of the Jewish book and Jewish liturgy. And he received his PhD in religions of Mediterranean antiquity from Princeton University after having received a BA in Talmud and Halakha and comparative religion and an MA in Talmud and Halakha and late antiquity studies from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, which is dear to me because I'm alumni from that too. So, uh, and I love these uh that the in late antiquity rabbinic literature um in your publications include studies in the development of Birkata Avodah and as well as several peer-reviewed articles. And when I saw this title and Wendy saw this title um that you have we're talking today about rain, nostalgia and empathy liturgical poems for the holiday of Sukkot. I got really excited because not only do I love the rabbinic literature and, and the prayer of Geshem and all these um, liturgical moments trying to give us the framework of the harvest and the agricultural cycle in Israel, but um, here at Bethel, we have a new tradition because in June, every June, the monsoon season is supposed to start in Phoenix. And a few years back, my husband created a prayer for the monsoon, which was recited in several congregations in Phoenix. And I think it still is um, every time in, in, in one of the Shabbatot on uh, of June. And so this is very exciting to go deeper, learning with you, bringing this theme back of prayer for rain. And so please take it away and teach us. <laughs> sure. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction, Rabbi. I'm really so excited to be here. It's been so inspiring seeing through um, this social media of Babi Midrash, how much programming you always do and how enriching it is and what amazing service it is to your community in Arizona and also to really Jews throughout the world. Work on the history of Jewish education, the history of Jewish knowledge, and also quite a bit on the history of Jewish liturgy. This is what I, I read and I, I research in my own publications and also what I teach here at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And there's opportunities to study that with me here or with other folks of ours here. Um, and one of the main things I work on actually also is specifically liturgical poetry from the period we call late antiquity. Um, this is the beginning of what is known as Pew, a phenomenon of, of Hebrew liturgical poems, um, 
mainly, mainly written in Hebrew, and I will in a moment talk about where they come from. Uh, and I'll say at the outset that these poems sometimes get a rap uh, of being extremely hard to understand, and some of them are very hard to understand. It's it's pretty remarkable to think that Jews were sitting in synagogues in northern Israel in the fourth, fifth centuries and listening to these complicated, complicated poems and understanding everything. But if they didn't understand it, if they didn't appreciate it, um, I don't see why folks would have written them and really have a tremendous amount of, of evidence from this. And one of the things that um, we'll speak about today primarily is, again, the ones for Sukkot. And we will see that the main theme really has to do with rain. This is a holiday of rain, as we mentioned here just now from the rabbi. And I'll say that here in New York, it's been raining a tremendous amount, actually, maybe too much rain. But the prayers that we'll be reading are prayers that really ask for rain. And they really tied into key aspects of Jewish myth um, and also Jewish nostalgia for the temple. So, so uh, introduction and outline. Um, we'll do first a brief overview of the history of central classical PU team um, for the holiday of Sukkot. That's what we're doing today. But we'll start with what is Piyut in general? Um, we'll talk then about a deep dive into Piyut team for Sukkot, the genres and settings in which they were recited, the central motifs, and also some interesting historical nuggets. Uh, that's what I called it. Because these Piyut team, although they're liturgy and in some sense they are quite timeless, they are written by specific authors, and those authors do refer to things that are taking place in their lives at that moment. I have here a mosaic detail from a synagogue in northern Israel, uh, which is one of the settings in which these poems might have originally been recited. You could actually go see this synagogue um, near Tiberias today. Um, and you can see that there are actually details of, of things that people use on the holiday of Sukkot here. You could see a lulav and a drog, a shofar, which is not used on, on Sukkot per se, um, but also incense shovel, which is interesting that it exists here in the synagogue depiction and menorahs. But, but I want, the reason I brought it is really for this beautiful depiction of the lulav and the drog, which Jews, of course, use on the holiday of Sukkot. So what is Piyut anyway, part one? Strictly speaking, it's liturgical poetry that serves to supplement the standard prayer text and even to replace some of it. So what does that mean? Um, Jews um, are supposed to every day recite the blessed, uh, the, the Kriyat Shema, the, the Shema and the blessings that surround the Shema, uh, and also the Amidah, which is a collection of blessings. And Piyut will replace the main text of those prayers, of the blessings of the Kriyat Shema or the blessings of Amidah, and they'll do it by bringing in content that has to do with that liturgical moment. So, for example, if it is the holiday of Sukkot, they will replace the standard text with material content that has to do with the holiday of Sukkot, as we'll see today. But the same thing could also be said of just any Sabbath. It could be the Sabbath in which uh, Genesis is read, and they'll replace some of the content of the blessing with uh, content that has to do with the book, of the, the the Parsha of Genesis. And this, the idea is, it, it, make, it keeps it interesting. There's a certain didactic aspect of it. They're teaching folks um, Jewish content and teaching them certain Jewish ideals. Um, and they're also, it also is prayer. It's a way to make the prayer, uh, to reinvigorate the prayer in a way to keep it relevant and to keep it appropriate for that specific moment in the liturgical year. So the word itself comes from the Greek word poetess, to create, same word that we get poetry from. Um, and it's interesting also that they choose specifically to use the Greek word here, and not just use the word that we have in Hebrew, a shir or a zemel, um, because they do recognize that this is something a little bit different. This is something which is a new genre for them. And it seems to have, again, only really begun to exist in the fourth or early fifth century in the land of Israel. We'll see also later on some other words that they might use to talk about this genre of poetry. So we divide Pew into different periods. We have the pre-classical period and the poems in this period are anonymous. There's no rhyme to them. So actually they sound quite a bit like modern poetry in that way. And they are, they are, though, very strict on the accent stress pattern. 
Um, so some famous ones that you will hear uh, in common liturgy today is Aleinu l'shabach l'adon hakol. So there's four stress patterns. Aleinu one, l'shabach two, l'adon two, uh, three, hakol four. Um, or kel adon, also another one we have in the Shabbat prayers. And so that's how we could also use to an extent just the accent pattern to uh, try and guess when these, when these poems are from. The classical period, the poems become more and more complex. And the authors, for the first time in rabbinic tradition, start signing their name on the in the in the in the work. They actually will kind of autograph the uh, the composition by using an acrostic. I will see an example of that later on. How in a, they'll take different lines of the poems and they'll put the first letters of their name, so we know that they wrote it. And the rabbinic literature that preceded this is famously is collectively authored. There is no one author of the Mishnah or of the Talmud. But in Pute, in liturgical poems, we start actually having the voice of a specific author. And we could even talk about um, the collections or the, the oeuvre, the, the poems of a specific paitan, of a specific creator of, of, of Pute. So these also poems in the classical period begin to rhyme. They exist in more and more genres, and they also use different stress patterns. And the most famous of this class, of um, this group of paitanim, is the, the early one. The first one to sign his name is Yanai. Um, very few of his poems have survived um, in commonly used prayer books today. We have found them in manuscript form, primarily in the Cairo Geniza. There's actually one poem of his that survived in the Haggadah for Pesach. Um, but his slightly younger uh, contemporary, actually, some traditions view him as a student, but he actually probably lived several decades later. Alazal Barabi Khalil was primarily active in the seventh century. A lot of his PU team are actually known from the Ashkenazi prayer book. And we'll be speaking about quite a few of them later today, because some of the ones that he wrote for the holiday of Sukkot way back in the seventh century are still recited today as part of the liturgy. So later PU Paitanim, uh, one of the main characteristics is that there are different centers with different aesthetics that largely also have to do with the host culture, whether it be Islamic or Christian. And so you start seeing centers in Italy and Ashkenaz, and these are closer to the tradition of the Paitanim in Israel. Um, and then you have Babylonia and eventually also communities in North Africa and Spain where the aesthetic is quite different. And they actually don't really like the Piyotim of the Kaliri and they kind of replace them with Piyotim of their own, according to a different aesthetic, which is more influenced by Arabic poetry. And this is just to give us a sense of the, of the geographic area. I can't find my mouse right now. Where'd it go? But we have here in the east, Babylonia, we have the land of Israel in the middle, and you have all around the Mediterranean world, you have different centers of Pute eventually. So there are different main genres of Pute. The main one um, is the Krova. Um, the plural means the Krovot. It literally means to come close or almost maybe to offer. And this are these are different ways in which liturgical poetry adorns the Amidah prayer, the kind of the Shmonasrei or the blessings of seven um, on Shabbat um, or holidays. Um, and the primary form within this is, sorry for all the background, but it's, it'll be helpful later on, is the Kedushta. And this adorns the Amidah when the Kedusha is recited. Um, so nowadays, this bracha, this blessing, the Kedusha, the Kedushta, um, Kedusha is recited all the time. I mean, Jews recite it if they pray in, in a minion uh, of Jews. With 10 Jews, they recite it several times a day. But in antiquity, it's important to know, in the land of Israel, folks would only recite this every now and then. So on on the Sabbath, in the morning, specifically in Shacharit, and on some holidays. So when they did say it, it was really a very, very important occasion, and they would therefore adorn that Amidah prayer with liturgical poems. The Shivata, and we have here the word in Aramaic seven, specifically adorns the Musaf Amidah, which has seven blessings usually, Rosh Hashanah has more, and they were not actually have included Yusha in it. 
we have very complex complex ones in Rosh Hashanah or in Yom Kippur we just saw when we go through all of the different re, uh, uh, reenacting of the the worship of the high priest in the Holy of Holies in Yom Kippur. That is Shiva Tapom. We just a lot of us just recited maybe uh, of some form of piyut. Other one is the first day of Pesach uh, when there is a special prayer for dew. And then on Shvini Yetzirah, it's right after Sukkot, kind of the end of Sukkot in some ways, uh, when they pray for rain. Another one we might see on Tisha B'Av still is the Kina, the kind of dirge. And then just now in the month of Elul, we recited the Sikhot, which is um, a kind of a, a penitential kind of litany that is recited also, um, originally a Babylonian genre, but ends up being written throughout the world. Ma'ariv adorns the blessings of the Amidah, I'm oh, sorry, of the Kriyat Shema at night. The Yotzer, the blessings of the Kriyat Shema during the day. And then Birkat Mozon, you actually have some examples of the grace after meals, um, which incorporate few. It could be for uh, a wedding, oftentimes a lot of them, but also for holidays. And the one we'll see today, and this might actually might be one of the earliest uh, forms of piyut, is the Hoshana, which is a specific form of piyut only recited on the holiday of Sukkot. That has to do with things we pray for on Sukkot. We'll get to that soon. So the piyut team of Sukkot, Shemini Yetzirat and Simchat Torah. Um, although we'll primarily speak about um, Sukkot at first, Shemini Yetzirat is, technically speaking, the holiday that immediately follows it. But in many ways, for the liturgical poets, it is part of the same holiday and part of the same theme. And Simchat Torah gets added much later on, at least in the land of Israel. But we won't speak about that at the total end, because as we celebrate today, um, the holiday of Sukkot and Shemini Yetzirat, we also celebrate Simchat Torah, in which we mark the completion of the reading of the Torah, the annual reading of the Torah. Um, that was a practice in Babylonia and antiquity. In the land of Israel, they read the Torah um, every three and a half years or so. It took them much longer to finish the whole Torah. Um, but over time, the Babylonian practice won, and Jews now recite the Torah, read the Torah once a year, the entire thing. And there are Piyut's theme, there are liturgical poems that are written on the occasion of Simchat Torah. And we're going to read one that's actually, I think, a bit surprising um, for the themes that it picks up on that. So the primary themes and all these compositions, as I kind of mentioned, have to do with rain. Um, but some of them also relate to Torah, especially when we start talking about Simchat Torah. So we have some Ma'arvim, we have Piyutim for the nighttime that are set as part of the Kriyat Shema, the recitation of the Shema uh, in Ma'ariv. And the Ashkenazi writes, which is what we'll talk about mainly, these are really ones written by German and French sages. We have Yotzrot, um, which are for the daytime Kriyat Shema of all kinds of selections. We have Kedush Ta'ot for when in Shacharit there is the recitation of the Kedusha. And we mainly have three by Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Khalil, um, fantastic poet who I mentioned already, whose works are actually very, very hard to understand, but they're still recited today in some of our communities. And then a very famous Shivata, a blessing of Geshem um, for the fall, for, for rain and Shmini Yetzirat, also by the Kaliri, um, called Athburi, which we will look at. And then lastly, the Hoshanot, which I mentioned already. And the Siddur today incorporates all kinds of Hoshanot um, from all different periods, but a lot of them actually are from, again, the Kaliri, the And so why do we talk about rain <laughs> on, on Sukkot? Um, besides the fact that it's raining here in New York all the time, and we heard it's almost monsoon season um, by you guys. So the Mishnah, uh, the primary rabbinic text from the beginning of the third century in the land of Israel says, uh, four times of the year, the world is judged. At Passover with respect to grain. The festival of weeks with respect to the fruits of the trees. All the dead to the world pass before him like legions of soldiers. 
שנאמר, היוצר יחד ליבם, מבין אל כל מעשיהם. As it is said, he who fashions the hearts of them all, who discerns all their doings, ובחג, לדונין על המים. And at the festival of Sukkot, they are judged with respect to water. I know it already here. One of the interesting things about Sukkot in rabbinic literature is that it is just the holiday. They just call it Chag. Um, and this has to do really with the centrality of Sukkot in rabbinic imagination and in rabbinic literature and rabbinic thought. Um, it is obviously still an important holiday today, but there is something about its importance that has been lost over time. Um, and that is because we no longer have the temple. Um, but seemingly in the eyes of the rabbis, rabbinic imagination, and even in the biblical text itself, this is to an extent the holiday on which the temple is reconsecrated every year. Eventually it will be a holiday celebrated by everyone throughout the world, but for now it's the Jews who celebrate it. And we know this also from all different kinds of ways. For example, in the story of Hanukkah, when the Maccabees uh, retook the temple, what did they do? Although it was the winter, they celebrated the Sukkot again. <laughs> um, and that was because they were, they were rededicating the temple. So that is part of what is going on here um, in the holiday of Sukkot in the rabbinic mind. That is part of why it is so central. That is why it is just the holiday. And one of the things that takes place um, during this act of reconsecration is the Hoshanot, is a specific liturgical rite which took place in the temple, according to the Mishnah. This is what it says in the Mishnah of Tractate Sukkah. Again, the Mishnah, main rabbinic text from the beginning of the third century. It's imagining what took place in the temple a century and a half or so beforehand. So mitzvah ta'alava ketzad, the commandment of the willow how. I'm just going to read it in English to save time. There's going to be a lot of Hebrew later, and it's very hard to translate the Putim into English, and I don't always even offer a translation, so I'll, I'll just read the translation now when I can. There was a place below Jerusalem called Moza. Go there today. They would go down to there and collect branches of willows from there, and they would come up and erect them at the sides of the altar, such that their tops were bending over the altar. They sustain, sounded a sustained blast, a quivering, a quivering blast, a sustained blast. Each day they would circle the altar once, saying, O Lord, deliver us. O Lord, let us prosper. Abai Judah says they would say, Anivaho, deliver us. And that day they circled the altar seven times. Let me actually just read the English and Hebrew in there one moment. So what they would say is, Ana Hashem Oshiana, Ana Hashem which is something we actually have in the Psalms as part of Halil. And Abai Judah says, Anivaho, Hoshiana. That's what they would say, Anivaho, Hoshiana. It already sounds a bit like Hoshana. And that day, they circled the altar seven times. When they departed, what did they say? Beauty is yours, O altar. Beauty is yours, O altar. Yofi lecham izbech. Yofi lecham izbech. And Bezer says they would say uh, to God, I'm not going to say it out loud, and to you, O altar, to God, and to you, O altar, or liyav lecham izbech, liyav lecham izbech. So there is this act of consecration involving the willows, which they kind of rededicate the altar to an extent, um, and also, in that sense, also re rededicate the temple in its entirety. Um, so this is kind of the, the mythic or almost the original um, act of Hoshanot, as remembered in the Mishnah. What we're going to do now is we're going to jump forward several hundred years. So this is the beginning of the third century. We're going to jump to the earliest books, the earliest Sudurim that we have come from the 9th century and the 10th century. And these were works written by the Babylonian Gilnim. Um, and one thing that's interesting about them is that they don't, they describe a practice for the first time really in Jewish history. Uh, they describe from the beginning to end, what Jewish liturgy looks like. And it's it's tremendous. It incorporates a ton of stuff in it, which we only have some evidence for in the intervening periods. We have the Mishnah, we have the Talmuds. And a few centuries later, from the eighth, from the ninth and 10th centuries, we have these first Sudurim written by the Babylonian Gionim, and they describe a ton of Jewish practices, a ton of liturgical practices, which are similar to what we do today. And it isn't always exactly clear where they all come from. 
And there also are differences between them, as we'll see. So the first one that we have is called Seder of Amram Gon. Oh, I don't know why I lost some letters there, but it's Amram, not Aram Gon. I don't know how I think autocorrect tried to correct my Aramaic into, into, into English words. Um, and he says here, <laughs> um, essentially he is asked, what is what are the Hoshanot? So what is the Hoshanot? Um, and he talks about how it how it is done. Um, that in the yeshiva, what happens is um, they take out the Malav and the Atrog, um, and everyone takes their own. And the Shatz, this is on the fourth line here, um, says Hoshana, he says the word Hoshana, and everyone after him says Hoshana. And then the Shatz says, the Shaliyach Tibor, the Chazan says, Hoshienu berachem alenu Hashem elokenu, leman shimcha gadol agibor v'amora, shiit gadal v'itkadash v'olam. And it goes on, and then everyone responds and says, Kin Yashem. Um, and they have this kind of back and forth calling. Um, and when it is done is all seven days of the holiday of Sukkot after the Musaf prayer. And he says, not just do they say those two verses, but they also say Alpha, Beta, Oshnai. Uh, one or two ABCs. <laughs> What's an Alpha, Beta? I don't know. We'll see in a moment what an Alpha, Beta could mean. Um, and on the seventh day, which is what today we call Hoshana Raba, they have great Hoshanot, they say a lot more. They say not just one or two of these alphabets, but they say a lot of them. That's in Amram Gaon. And a few centuries, one century later, we have another Sidon. This is Sadia Gaon, uh, who wrote his own Siddur. Um, and it's actually, in some ways, a more full uh, liturgical book than Amram Gaon. It has a lot more guidance in it. He wrote it in Judeo-Arabic. Um, and this is from a manuscript of the book that we have here in our library here at the Jewish Theological Seminary. And he goes into even far greater detail about what this looked like. And... Oh, wait, did I find my, my mouse? <laughs> um, second. And he says, um, sorry, I just can't see it because I somehow can't find my mouse here. Okay, whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll read it off the other screen. So he, he also talks about when it is said. Um, and he, I've highlighted it here on the left, on the right side, on the right, on the right part of the, of the screen. It doesn't say it after Musaf, but actually after they say Hallel, they say Yamida, and then they say Hallel. And then after that, they start doing Hoshanot. So it's actually a different location than when Amram says it should be said. And there actually are differences in Jewish communities now about when in the prayers they 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 say the Hoshanot. Um, and he goes into far greater detail about uh, what is said. And he actually even incorporates some of these prayers here in his own book. Um, and he actually has the Hoshanot that he himself wrote. So this off the bat, he also calls them Aleph Beta, um, ABCs. Looking at the screen now, and on the left side of your screen, um, he incorporates, he brings some of these Hoshanot. Anyone have a guess why he calls them Aleph Bets <laughs> or ABCs? Well, you can see that these are organized by ABC, by the Aleph Bet, Gimel Dalit And he, in this sitter here, it actually involves the Aleph Bet, Adir Ba'adirim, uh, the great ones among the great ones, Borel Ruach Harim, he who created the spirit and built the mountains. And so we start first with some attribute of God with an Aleph, an attribute of God begins with a Bet, and then one with Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav. And that is how a lot of these Hoshanot um, are structured, is according to the Aleph Bet. Um, there's a question in the history of, of liturgy is why, why folks might do that. Some Psalms actually are also organized as an Aleph Bet. And it, it seems like it could just be a poetic form, something that poets like to do to give themselves more rules to make it into an elevated kind of form of, of literature. It also could be something that could be done to, to be memorized, right? Or to be created on the spot, right? You could say, I have to think now of a list of attributes of God according to the Aleph Bet. 
Um, yeah, or it has to do with, with memorization as well, because it helps them if you remember according to some kind of scheme. Um, and we will see here what some scholars think actually might be one of the earliest of the Shoshanot. And it is a very, very simple kind of, again, um, way of just describing God and asking him to save us. Hoshana osev lemancha elokeinu hoshano. Hoshana, for your sake, O God, save. Lemancha boeinu hoshana, for your sake, our creator, save. Lemancha goaleinu hoshana, for your sake, our redeemer, save. Lemancha doshenu hoshana, for your sake, he who seeks us, save. So it actually picks up on a theme that we see at times also uh, in biblical prayer, um, that if God shouldn't save us for our own um, merit, he should actually save it for himself. It's important for God that we exist and that we are saved. Um, and this is something which is also interesting to think about in the context of prayer nowadays, because it's, there is almost this sense forever in Jewish liturgy that in exile, there always, of course, is, is a need to be saved. Um, we are in a state of exile perpetually, and we could use some help from God. Um, but we'll come back to that in a, in a moment. So that was an early example that we saw to, to complexify things. Um, he has a much longer one, um, but it's still, it's, it's very, very simple. Um, and I have it here in Hebrew and in English. I know it's a lot to see, but I'll just read some of it. Um, so, make us to be a name and praise. Restore us into our lot inheritance. To raise us higher and higher. Bring us together into the Beit HaTfilah. It continues, it continues. Um, and one of the things which is very, very apparent in the Kaliri Soshanot is this messianic kind of fervor to an extent. It's very much not just about saving per se, but it is very, very much about some kind of post-exilic kind of messianic future of salvation. Like specifically bring us back to the temple. Um, let us come back to your rebuilt city as in the beginning. Bring us back to Zion um, in his perfection. And something which is important to remember also with, with the Kaliri is that, first of all, he just likes to make things complex, so he's just going to add more and more. And the messianic kind of idea here is something which is very, very common in Judaism in general. But the Kaliri also lived in interesting times. Um, he lived in the beginning of the 7th century in the land of Israel, primarily we think in the north of Israel. Um, so in the time that he lived, he saw massive, massive wars between the Roman armies and the Iranian Sasanian armies, including a period in which the Sasanians took over the land of Israel from the Romans, and then the Romans got it back from them. And we know also that he lived to see the Muslim conquest of the land of Israel. He even speaks in his team sometimes about Muslim rulers. Um, so we know that he lived through these massive shifts in the political uh, rule of the land of Israel. And some scholars think that that also might have led to some of his kind of messianic fervor at times, because he saw these massive world empires fighting not just the world in general, but also fighting in his own backyard, fighting over Jerusalem itself. And so this might have also pushed him more in that direction. But this is a piyut, this is a Hoshana that we still say to this day, because even if it might have been situated in his own context, it's something which does speak to these kind of general Jewish notions of nostalgia for the temple, of um, longing for the temple, and of our desire for its being rebuilt. So you can see here the Aleph Bet. He does something fun with it because he always got to make things complicated, he does it backwards. Um, so every line begins with a taf, but he goes titneno, so it's taf taf, tishiveno, taf shin, until we get to teadreno, taf aleph, teadreno biyashra vigila. But we have a few more lines with a few more letters. And what do we see there? El azar chazak. So that's how we know it, has, it was written by El azar the Kaliri, because he has the backwards aleph bet. Remember, Sadia and Amram called these things aleph bet. And then he, at the end, he says, uh, 
Teorino until he gets his own name as Elazar Chazar. Um, Elazar, may he be strong or the strong one. <clears throat> so this is a genre which is quite interesting because even though this is complicated, um, it's still very, very simple for the Kaliri. The Kaliri, as we'll see later, has extremely complicated uh, compositions which are very hard to understand. This is still very similar to this one that we saw. It's still very similar to this kind of basic form of the Hishana, uh, which is not that complicated at all. He just adds a few more words to it and he does the alphabet backwards and he puts his own name to it. So Joseph Heinemann, uh, who was a scholar of, of liturgy at the Hebrew University, he argued quite famously, and a lot of people agree with him, that the literary stylistic analysis of these Piyot patterns, i.e. the Hoshanot, then leads us to the conclusion that they are very ancient. They were already so considered at the time of Kaliar, so much that this radical innovator did not dare tamper with them, right? So there is such a strong tradition of the Hoshanot um, and its genre and the way that it should be built that that must speak to them being very, very old. And what scholars think, it actually might be very, very close to the pattern in which such prayers might have been recited in the temple itself, um, which is remarkable. Because if that's the case, then we are thinking here of a 2000 year old tradition, liturgical tradition um, that Jews have continued to use, in, even in contexts which are very, very different. So we could think about how the holiday of Sukkot um, just is very different when it's pouring here nonstop in New York and I want to stop raining. It's very different than the land of Israel when they are now wanting there to be rain. But even more so, when you think about how this might have been something which could have been said, might have been said in the temple when they are rededicating the temple. Um, and as a part of the rededication, the annual rededication of the temple asking for God uh, that there should be rain, um, whereas now we are quite distant from that reality. The temple is, is long gone. And, and the prayer is, is so strong and so evocative that it could be repurposed just kind of for general uh, Jewish experiences outside of the temple thousands of years later. Um, so on the note of the, of the temple, um, one thing which is interesting about um, the holiday of Sukkot is also how, in a way, the, the Sukkot itself can be envisioned as a temple. And this goes back to actually biblical language, because in the Bible, at times, the word Sukkot is actually used to refer to the temple, the fallen booth of David, Sukkot David Hanofelet. Um, so as if, you know, David's law, uh, destroyed temple. And in the, the Paitanin themselves really pick up on this language and try and talk about Sukkot as a temple. So we have one Hoshana, which says, that they should raise up um, the Sukkah of David. Yosef Ibn Tor from the um, Svarti Rite says, So you should raise up your Sukkah, and the Kaliri talks about it's explicitly raise up the Sukkah of David. And again, this is these are Putin, which are supposed to be read on the holiday of Sukkot. So when reading about, or when praying about, the temple and using the term sukkah to talk about it while you're celebrating the holiday of Sukkot in a temple, in, in a sukkah, it imbues also um, the sukkah that you yourself are using with that kind of same templeness to it. It raises, it brings in that quality of templeness to your little shack outside your house. Um, but this is even more explicit in one pew team of the Kaliri. Um, when he actually starts talking about himself as, this, as if he is still in the temple, Right, the altar will be surrounded or filled up with the willows. We saw in the Mishnah that it is being covered in the, in the willows. Right, but I actually came myself. I did that, and so he is imagining the ritual as it is being done, the Hoshanot ritual, in his own time, centuries after the temple is destroyed. He is depicting it as if it is the temple itself. Right, it is as if now 
this is a pew that also Jews recite today. Um, it is really trying to not only bring, as we saw earlier, the temple imagery um, into the sukkah, but also into the synagogue on the holiday of Sukkot. So we have both of those ways in which um, the holiday of Sukkot is trying to kind of localize or domesticate um, the temple into contemporary Jewish practice. So that's on the holiday of Sukkot itself. Um, and now moving a little bit more towards the end of the holiday. So these are kind of recited in the context of rain, um, but Shemini said at the holiday, which is immediately after Sukkot, but in many ways experienced as part of the same holiday, is important because that is when folks explicitly start requesting rain in a more, again, explicit manner. Mishnah says, from when does one mention the power of rain? When does actually people start asking for rain explicitly in the Amidah prayer? Well, the Ezra says, from the initial holiday of the festival, so from the beginning of the holiday of Sukkot. Joshua says, from the final day of the ho uh, holiday of the festival. Joshua said to him, since rains during the festival are a sign of a curse, why should he mention them? It actually, it says elsewhere in rabbinic text that if it rains in the holiday of Sukkot, that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's supposed to rain afterwards, it's not supposed to rain on Sukkot itself. You could think also about it's not so fun sitting in your sukkah when it's raining or when it's wet. And then as I said to him, indeed, I did not say to request, but only to mention who causes the wind to blow and the rain to fall in their due time. Rabbi Joshua said, if we're just mentioning it, let him always mention it. So actually, the conclusion seems to be that we only start requesting rain explicitly um, on Shemini Yatzerot, on that holiday, which is kind of appended to Sukkot. Um, and that is how we get essentially to this very, very big genre of piyutim that ask for rain. And these mainly appear as the Shivata, the liturgical poem that adorns the Musa prayer um, of the seven blessings on the holiday of Shemini Yatzerot. And we have this extremely complicated one <laughs> by the Kaliri, which folks have actually to this day, centuries later, struggled to understand. And he says in the beginning, you might have heard people say this in Sinai before, Afri Utat Shem Sal Matal. No one knows what Afri means, but it seems to be, according to what he's saying here, this is the name of the angel who is appointed on the rain. We don't know who that person is. <laughs> Um, but it is a tradition that he received that there is an angel who's in charge of it and that they call him Afguri. Um, and what he is doing then is requesting that the angel and the Kaliri in his genius makes up words here about rain. So um, and to make clouds to shed out the water, to spread out the water also to kind of let forth the water. Um, and you see the word mime appears throughout here, and there's different words that are being used for water, but it's a very, very explicit kind of just request that rain be brought now. Um, very complicated. You can see it in most common Sudurim today. This prayer is still recited, even though it's very difficult to understand. So we're going to look at ones, though, that are a little bit more easy to understand. So the Kaliri lives in the 7th century, in the 8th century, around a century or so later. Um, there is another Paitan who's considered to be the last of the classical era, Pinchas. And his piyutim are much easier to understand. And one of the things he talks about in his piyutim for Shemini Yatzeret is almost these kind of mythical uh, waters. Um, and in the second paragraph here, right? for both bad and for good, uh, there were created seven types of water. Mitukim, sweet, marim, bitter, miluchim, suchim, mitukim, ve'avak, ve'afarim. So the, the sweet, the bitter, the salty, the disgusting water, the boiling water, um, and also the mud, muddy water. And he talks about the mitukim, the sweet, the sweet ones like the waters of Miriam's well. Marim, uh, uh, the bitter waters, and he goes to these different biblical forms of water, uh, the, the disgusting water, like the water in stone, um, etc. And 
as part of his prayer and asking for water, he goes through this mythical history of what water has done in the history of the world, in the history of the Jews, the history of the world, specifically asking, though, for the kind of water that is good for us. And he ties this in also to the specific um, physio, the, the, actually the physical nature of man himself. So just as there are seven kinds of water in the world, there are also seven kinds of water in man. This is, you know, not in keeping with modern day science, um, but note that what's key here is the seven, seven kinds of water in the world, seven kinds of water in person, but in the end, we get to the eighth. Shmini this is the eighth day. Right, so we go through these seven different forms of water, and then we get to the eighth day, the eighth day in which we fully request water, when now we've been waiting all week, building up to this moment in which we could actually ask God directly that he rain forth upon us the water that is good for us. Right, we must actually put our heart forth and ask for water. Right, there is no life in the world without water. That's why life is called water. Everything was created from water. Everything in the world, man or beast or creepy crawler, was created from water. Um, and he goes on and on and, and talking about just how important water is until he finally gets to the end. Um, but the heavens, heavens were built from fire and not from water. From the light of the enclosed of God itself. Was the heaven where the heavens created, and at this point in the prayer, um, it's kind of the the apex of the prayer itself, um, and um, this actually isn't from a shivata itself; it's from a kedushta, and it leads right in after that, and so we get to that image of talking about water after all these lines of poetry of liturgical poetry, getting to the fire. It leads right into the kedusha. It leads right into the recitation of the kedusha by the community, and it's a very, very, very powerful moment in which. Essentially, Pinchas the Python has taken us through this mythical history of, of water, tying it into the liturgical moment of us over the seven days of Sukkot, having requested for water a little bit or for God to save us, and into the eighth day when we start petitioning God very, very forcefully to give us water, um, and juxtaposing that with the alternative, which is fire. Um, so thinking about all that, thinking about how this is a holiday about nature, this is a holiday about um, after we have gone through all the spiritual kind of uh, processes of Elul, of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur, and bring us back to actually what is some of the most basic elements, the most basic elements um, without which we cannot live in the world, vis-a-vis -vis water, and vis-a-vis -vis also fire, and vis-a-vis -vis all of that coming from God. Um, so that's, and then we're heady kind of uh, nostalgia, myth, water, rain. Uh, I wanted to, before I conclude, bring um, a few interesting historical tidbits from some of these team. And one thing which we see in these pew team is that a lot of these folks actually went up to Jerusalem for the holiday of Sukkot. Maybe you know people who go to Jerusalem for Sukkot. But the Kaliri who lived in northern Israel, he talks about them being on Halal Zetim. Um, it comes up quite a bit. Um, and this also comes up in Pinchas. He talks about We know this from actually from later texts uh, from the 10th century, 11th century, that um, once a year, the Jews and the land of Israel would get together in, in Sukkot, uh, mainly on Sukkot, uh, to Jerusalem um, to um, to actually talk about the calendar for the coming year. They have this little kind of sign, uh, meeting or discussion in which they would use the holiday of Sukkot as an opportunity to come to Jerusalem, where they did not live for the most part, um, and talk about what the calendar will be for 
the coming year. So again, something which has to do with seasons and the seasonality which Sukkot is marking. Um, we even have one period in this period, and I underlined it here, Sati mi bait, I left my home, Asot sukkah bahava'at So I actually left my home and made my sukkah <laughs> on the Temple Mount. Um, so maybe not Halazitim itself, not the Mount of Olives, but nearby. Um, so one last thing I'll talk about, and this has to do with what happens when you add some Torah to the mix. And when you think about all those motions that I spoke about, the spiritual practices of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, um, and then introspection, and the um, almost elemental kind of practices that have to do with Sukkot, the nostalgia for the temple and what it could bring us um, vis-a-vis this very, very kind of physical um, ritual of shaking the lulav, of asking for water, the bare necessities of life and that they come in properly. Um, we add on top of that the whole idea of finishing the Torah. And we refer to it as Sukkot Torah, as the moment of joy. But in, when we actually read the Torah on that day, it's something unbelievably tragic. Because what do we read about when we celebrate the Torah? We read about Moses' death. And some of the PU team talk about uh, Moses' death in very, very evocative terms. Um, and they they actually create these imagined um, dialogues of, um, of Moses talking about what it's like to be at that place, to be at that place on the Mount Nebo um, and where he will see the land of Israel, but not the wing. Amazing are you, Israel, who is like you. Blessed are you who try and rush into the land of Israel. To the place that was promised us. And I had to go up to Mount Nebo. And 60,000 cried for me. And he just goes on to this, this whole pattern here. This piyut talks about how amazing the people of Israel is and how sad he is. That he has to say goodbye to them at this moment. And I think it's a it's a very almost like surprising kind of bookend to the entire season that we see in this pew, that it adds this whole element of um, bringing us back down to bare necessity of water and how important it is for life. And also the difficulty in actually really ever knowing if we will be able to fulfill what we want to get, if we actually will be able to, to get all that from God, because maybe we'll end up like Moses, which is an amazing kind of example for us uh, of thinking about what God wants from us and what the limits of our desire are at this time. So... That's a lot of different themes. I know it's a lot of text too. I'm happy to pause now to take some, some questions from everyone. Should I, should I close the slide? Is that more helpful? Sure, that'd be great. Thank you so much, Dr. Landis. Um, yes, we'd love to open it up to questions or comments. Please feel free to raise your hands and unmute if you would like to speak um, or to use the chat. And actually to kick things off, I did receive a question in the chat during the presentation. So I'll read that now. Um, that was, do the pew team you speak of function as replacements or additions, mm-hmm. for example, blessings around Shema? Mm-hmm. Well, so originally, it's actually they were re- replacements for the blessings. But over time, people kind of did not feel so comfortable doing that. There actually was a debate between the different rabbis from different centers. So if in the land of Israel, um, folks were cool with us replacing it and using pew, the Babylonian rabbis uh, were never really so um, pro pew in general. But eventually they realize that they can't they can't beat it. It's a phenomenon which is so popular amongst Jews everywhere that they have to incorporate it. And they'll say, we'll make kind of an accommodation. You could say the piyut so long as you also retain the standard prayer as well and just recite them one after the other. And that's what happens today in our sitters as well. Thank you. Thank you. Who wrote that last poem about Moshe's death? No, oh, no, I can send it to you, but we don't we don't know who wrote okay. it. Okay. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the There's other piyut that also talk about that moment as well. Yeah. I should say also, it's, it, there's a lot of poetry in general on that, a lot of modern Hebrew poetry actually on that moment, which is very evocative as well. 
Hi, Glad. Now you can go. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm just um kind of a little bit curious about this and you know, kind of ripping off Arthur Wasco a little bit though. But um I'm thinking about also self-reflection during a <laughs> okay. Uh, during the self-reflection and meditation during Shmini Aserat. Okay, sorry, I butcher Hebrew. But I'm thinking about it, though, and I'm thinking about also just reading about Moses's, you know, like death and everything like that, though, and how humans might actually reflect on their own individual mortality. Um, so, you know, with all of these, you know, writers actually going through, like, you know, pilgrimage to Jerusalem and everything else like that, I was just, you know, kind of curious about you know, that and also if it's reflected in also the some petitioning God for needs and stuff like that. I missed the last thing and also it's reflected in what? If it's reflected oh, in like, you know, asking for rain and everything like that. Is God going to also lead yeah, us? I think, to, yeah. I think I think it's interesting because I think um so the whole aspect of the early Pew team that I, I brought really about rain and stuff, they were written in a time when Jews weren't actually going to be finishing the, the reading of the Torah yet because they were reading it on a triennial cycle or it's actually like a seven year cycle. Um, so I do think actually, nonetheless, there was mortality is there because they are really asking so, um, just so kind of directly, uh, that God save them, that God provide them with the bare necessities that they need to live. So there already was this kind of, I think, um, notion of mortality or engagement with mortality in those pew team. And then I think when you add on top of that, um, the conclusion of the Torah and the pew team that were written about Moses's death, it becomes very, very, very deep. It becomes really, really a deep reflection. So I think there it already was there a bit because without rain you can't live and with too much rain you can't live um and then when you add also the concluding of the torah and the tragic parts that come with the concluding conclusion of the torah yeah that it was already the ground was already ready for that in a way um and yeah it's quite a way to also like enter the winter way <laughs> thank you um another question was sent to me in the chat which was about um how the word empathy was in the title for the talk and wanting mm -hmm. to know if there's some connection between um, Sukkot, Simchat Torah, Shemini Atzeret, and Empathy. Yeah, so I was going to focus on something a little bit differently, um, but I do think it is there in some ways, I think because some things that you see in some of the PTM is a little hard to get there, um, is that there's something about going outside. There's something about, I think, being outside of your comforts. Empathy for people who are observing the commandment. Um, oh, I got to note that my internet connection is unstable. Hopefully you could hear me. And I think that there's something about uh, being uncomfortable. There's something about actually focusing on how um, forcing ourselves to be uncomfortable. That could help us also empathize with people who might not have the same level of comfort as us. And that kind of shakiness to an extent, that kind of um, lack of reliance on our normal homes and our normal kind of situations of comfort that could bring that out for people. Thank so you. it's interesting also because it's also, it's doing that while also bringing this imagery of the temple onto the sukkah as well. Like that is a holy space. That's a holy state of mind to be in. That while we are bringing ourselves into something which is less comfortable, it is, that is a form of temple. That is a form of something which is extremely important and a holy act for us to do. Hi, Wendy. Hi, thank you. Wonderful talk. I'm wondering about a modern Pew team. Of course, we we're very blessed to have uh, Daniel Steinkoken share his prayer for monsoon mm -hmm. and a custom here. Uh, I will mention, I believe last year we didn't say it, and it was the hottest summer on record in Phoenix. And um, the Steinkokens were away. <laughs> Actually, really, I don't know. I, haven't, I only heard of uh, Professor Steinkoken's prayer 
an introduction to this talk and I'm really, really curious to see it. So if folks can send it to me, I'd really appreciate that because I'm definitely looking for more contemporary liturgy on climate change and things like that. So that's my question. Where is there space for modern PU team and, and how does it fit into our, to our, yeah. to so, um, it's not what I study per se. Um, I'm not a rabbi also, so I, I can't comment on like whether it's okay to insert it into prayers, but I can say personally that in, in, in places that I've been where it has been incorporated, I find it to be really amazing and really beautiful. And I think also some of the more, some of the things I found to be very effective um, are Pew team that kind of riff off of a Pew team that that we have from antiquity, right? Ones that kind of bring them up to date. Um, so in our community that where I where I pray, um, we've done a lot about that in terms of bringing in also um, making them more more gender equality in them, uh, bringing in a lot of a lot of Pew team, um, even some of the Pew team from Sukkot. Some of the main rhetorical kind of moves that they make is calling upon you know the merits of the ancestors or calling upon um, just as God saved them at that moment. We call that a historiola. That's what scholars of liturgy call that. Um, so bring in amazing, amazing examples that we have from matriarchs, from female figures in the Bible, um, who God answered their prayers and things like that. So I found that to be very evocative and very effective in just anecdotally in prayer in the synagogue that I pray in. Um, but I don't know yet too much about that from a scholarly perspective, and I'm curious to learn more from you all. I'm sorry, we'll go to Professor Steinkoken first, and then we can go back to you, Mona. Thank you for the great talk. I'll glad I'll send you my monsoon you. prayer. I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Feel mm. free to be critical. It's more interesting. I also, um, I say also, there is a really great website that a friend of mine organizes called Open Sitter. It's Open Sitter Project. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so Aaron Vardy, great person to have talk also. And he's done a huge amount to collect material like that. Maybe your prayers there, but there's a lot of prayers up there, which are really beautiful. Mine is on Ritual Well, actually, but yeah, I, I am familiar with Open Sitter. They have great stuff there. So I wanted to actually ask you about something else you said, which is how I, how there are these personal nuggets uh, that you, you suggested, these biographical nuggets. And I just wanted to ask you there, how do you, dis, how do you discern when it's actually the individual author telling us about something that he specifically did or does, mm -hmm. as opposed to something that's actually symbolic, that it's sort of the, the idealized I, perhaps, yeah. Um, it's this, it's, I wasn't entirely sure if, I mean, I only had a brief opportunity to look at these texts, but sometimes I was wondering, is this really, is he really saying, this is what I do, or is he saying, this is what we imagine that we're, that we're doing? Um, anyway, if you have more to say on that, I'd be interested. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard, I could say at the bat, and there are ones that I go back and forth on, and there's ones that my colleagues and I argue about, and I disagree with them when they overreading and they think I'm overreading. Um, so I think if I was trying to find like one hard and fast rule, um, it's that you try and find things that really aren't biblical motifs to an extent, because anything that's a biblical motif, first of all, it, it still could be a historical nugget. It's it's possible that it is something which they are doing today, but there always is the chance that actually, no, they're just picking up on the theme. Actually, a lot of the Kaliri's more messianic kind of stuff has been reinterpreted in that fashion. So people have said, actually, he might've written a poem for a long time people thought it was actually specifically about the Muslim conquest. And then a scholar came and said, actually, a lot of this stuff is just biblical themes. And it's very hard for us to kind of know if it's just him riffing off biblical themes or if it's him actually seeing an historical event. And I kind of agree with that check. But I think something specifically about the Mount of Olives as a place of celebration of the holiday of Sukkot is interesting because it, it isn't in the Bible. And it is something we have explicitly from historical documents from a few centuries later that we know that they were doing. And so we can say, oh, well, we have 
letters of people or documents them describing it, doing that act in the 10th century. And then we see these few lines of poems that say, oh, we are going up to the to, to, to Jerusalem for Sukkot. And that's not a biblical theme, um, but they're going specifically to the Mount of Olives. You can say, oh, well, I think that actually is a sign that something like that better documented, uh, something that's better documented in the later centuries was already existing to an extent earlier on. Um, mm -hmm. other ones, I mean, again, we go back and forth on this quite a bit. Yep. There's, yeah, I'm happy to say more literature on that because also folks have published on that topic mm -hmm. of the method itself and how it works. Yep. Yeah, more Thanks. So I wanted to just mention, I think you you nailed something. You mentioned something really important, which is the, the sweet spot of water, right? Too much is dangerous. Too little is dangerous. I remember reading in Dafyomi at some point in the Talmud about the waters of Tahom that were coming up near the temple. And um, and and so whoever was dealing with this was was said whatever they needed to say to, to push it down. I think they threw in a rock with the name of God, if I'm not mistaken, or that something was was thrown in. And then, and then they, but they went down too far. <laughs> and so then they had to do sheer hamalot to, to bring up the water to the right level. Yeah. Yeah. So Chakti Tanit is, is very, very um, big on all these different. So a lot of the fasts that are described in the Chakti on fast have to do with fast for, for rain or for lack of rain, actually. Mm -hmm. Most of us do with lack of rain, but there are stories about too much rain. And actually, there's a tradition uh, in some Jewish communities um, to read parts of that tractate on Shmini Yatzeret. Um, on the on the last day, mm -hmm. kind of of Sukkot, um, specifically we see it in in the Spanish rite in liturgical books coming from Spain um, that they they recite part of that Mishnah um, that has to do with fast for rain on Shemini It's another way of kind of another thing that can be done to try and get the proper amount of rain uh, for everyone. Thank you. Um, I think that's about all the time we have, but thank you so much, Dr. Landis, for joining us today and for that great presentation. And also thank you to our wonderful partners at Beth L for co-hosting today's event. Uh, just want to let everyone know about our next class. We have one more Sukkot-related class, which will be uh, next Thursday, October 5th at 10 a.m. Pacific. Um, that will be about the history of Jews in Uganda and their Sukkot experience with Rabbi Gershom Sizomu. So we hope you can join us for that as well. And um, wishing everyone a Chag Sameach. Have a great holiday. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.